It's going to be just a little bit of a different kind of sermon for you today. It's not really expositional in the sense I'm not, I'm not uh, expositing the entire text that we just read. It's kind of a jumping off place and a coming back to place, so hope you can tolerate that. We don't do it often and then we repent of it, so... C.S. Lewis is an example of a man um, who had rejected God, and yet there was something he didn't know of God that he really needed and longed for. See, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have put the name God to it, but there was this thing. He was, he was kind of on a quest for something called joy, and that became actually a very big part of his life and how he thought about his faith once he came to it. Uh, but in talking about joy, he mentions that prior to coming to Christ, there were three distinct times when he felt that he came to glimpse what joy was like. They're rather odd. When I, when I tell them to you, uh, maybe if you're really into C.S. Lewis, this will resonate. Otherwise, you might be thinking, hmm, okay. So the one time was a memory. It was a memory of a time. He was remembering a time when he and his brother were young, and they brought some toys in. It was raining outside. They, they, were, they were playing inside the house. And he had this, and I would call it wistful, this kind of wistful moment thinking back. And it was kind of an aching, longing almost to be back in that, in that moment. And he likened that to the idea of joy. Another moment, this is also kind of quirky, uh, this also in his childhood, he was reading Beatrice Potter's book, Squirrel Nutkin. Any, any big Squirrel Nutkin fans in the bunch? Yeah? Okay. I mean, it seems a little nutty to me, but what am I, you know, what do I know? Uh, anyway, he was reading, I guess in that book, there's sort of this, again, kind of a wistful longing for autumn. And he felt that. He felt this sort of thing inside of him all of a sudden well up in reading that where he, he wanted that. And, and, he, and there was this desire that lasted for a little brief while, but then it was gone. He fell out of it. The third time, the third time, he was in his father's library. And there was a book by Longfellow. It was a, tra- a, a book of translations of poems that Longfellow had translated. And he picked it up and he read... I heard a voice that cried, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead. You're like, does that trigger anything for you? But it did for him. It did for him. Here's what he says. I knew nothing about Balder, but instantly I was uplifted into huge regions of northern sky. I desired with almost sickening intensity... Something never, never to be described except that it is cold, spacious, severe, pale, and remote. And then, as in the other examples, the other two we talked about, found myself at that very same moment already falling out of that desire and wishing I were back in it. Lewis was kind of deep, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, but, but he felt this intense desire, and for him... It was not the actual acquiring of the thing, but it was in the desire itself where he would come into contact, contact with what he called joy. Then he would sense this thing, but he would quickly fall out of it. It was only when he became a Christian, 
which he wrote an autobiography about becoming a Christian called Surprised by Joy. Because in the moment when he came to Christ, he was expecting it to be like a surrender, you know, like an unconditional surrender in battle. That's how he looked at it. But when he came to Christ, he was shocked by this, this thing that he'd always wanted being part of the package, that there was joy in that. And you're like, Where, where's this going? How does it relate to Matthew? How does it relate to Advent? Well, this is, this is where I got thinking about this. We sing songs about Christ as the desire of every nation. You know that one? Where it says, dear desire of every nation, right? That's, that's an Advent tune. Or joy to the world. Like the world is going to have joy at the coming of Messiah. Um, or long the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the th- soul felt its worth. Each of those and others like them kind of put across the notion that, that the world was just waiting, languishing, looking for joy, that the nations were desiring Messiah until he finally appeared. But the question is, is that how it was? Were they looking? Were they earnestly desiring that joy? And I would have to say that on the one hand, the answer is no. <laughs> Not knowingly, they weren't thinking, oh, I can't wait till that you know, that, that Messiah from Israel pops up. That'll be great. I don't think very many of them were thinking that way. But try this on for size, and it's in your bulletin. Jesus Christ is the untapped joy and desire of the nations. But they don't know it. Yeah? This is what they desired, but they didn't know that they desired it. Let's look at four biblical proofs of that kind of expectancy among the nations, um, yeah, it was covered in fog and ignorance and so forth. But like Lewis, I, I you know, Lewis, Lewis talked about this joy thing. He used a German word, Sehnsucht. Sehnsucht, you don't have to remember that, but if you like, you can. But it, it kind of it gets at the idea of an intense sense of longing for something you can't fully name. Yeah, like you have this sense that there's something perfect beyond this, which, and, and it's like a striving, a longing, but you, you, you can't really grab hold of it. That's what Lewis uh, referred to. And I think there was a Sehnsucht in the nations that was waiting to be fulfilled. And so when Christ comes, it, it's like, oh yeah, this is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been longing for. So proof number one, there was the promise of Abraham's blessing. When God chose Abraham to be the guy through whom the covenant would be made, which would come down then ultimately to the Jewish people, we read in Genesis 20, he says, In your, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then this is taken up in the New Testament several places. We see it in Galatians. It says, You know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Who is the offspring of Abraham? The offspring of Abraham, the one through whom the nations would be blessed, is none other than Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Long before the Gentiles knowingly called upon his name for salvation, the promise had already been laid in. 
Go back to, to Lewis again for just kind of a point of comparison. It was as though something was already in his DNA when he read, Balder the Beautiful is Dead. Like, why should that resonate? There's not any real explanation. Why did that grab hold of him? Why did that lift him to this, to this longing, to this desire? And I, I think the same is true, that, that from the moment, and maybe before then, but, but from the moment God made that promise to Abraham, that promise was also made to the nations. Whether they knew it or not, they were longing for it. You know, there's a, a trope. I don't know. Some people really are annoyed by the term trope. If you are, I'm sorry. But there's a trope, uh, a theme uh, that comes up in movies from, from time to time in TV shows. How many have seen this where uh, either, uh, okay, so it's always fantasy because either you're dealing with parallel universes or multiple timelines or time travel or somebody that's being reincarnated or something along those lines. So those things, one of those two things has to pertain for this to work. Um, but th- there'll be somebody who is in love with another person. And then in that timeline, one of them comes to an end. But then in another timeline, he or she meets that man or woman again. You know? And they don't know him. But there's a trope where a lot of times the person will get a certain look like, huh, like, like they're feeling something. Like there's something from that other timeline that sort of imprinted itself on it. When the gospel comes to the Gentiles, it doesn't come as something utterly and completely foreign. I'm convinced of that. You go into the the Amazonian rainforest into these, you know, these perfect idyllic tribes that live in, un, you know, it's not really that way. They're in there killing each other and, and li- living under fear of spirits. But when the gospel comes to a people group like that that have never had any prior knowledge of the Bible, of, of, of Judaism or anything else, when they come to the story of Christ, it's kind of like that Balder the Beautiful is dead. It's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what we need. That's what we've been looking for. That's, so it resonates all the way back to um, the seed of Abraham. Proof number two. There was a prophet named Balaam. You may or may not remember Balaam. How many remember Balaam? Yeah, oh, good number of you. You know Balaam and Balaam's donkey. Um, I think that's the proper English word back in the King James, I think it was something else, which we no longer can say from a pulpit without uh, fear of upsetting someone. But anyway, he, he had the famous uh, temporarily talking uh, donkey. But more than that, the, the, the more important part of the story than the talking donkey is that he was called by the king of Moab to come in and curse the Israelites. The Israelites were on their way back to the promised land. They'd been in Egyptian captivity for 400 years. And so Balak, they didn't, we weren't very creative with their names in that culture, Balak and Balaam, but um, Balak, he's like, I need you to curse these Jews for me, you know, these Israelites. And, uh, and Balaam's like, well, I don't know what I can do for you, buddy. I mean, I can only do what God tells me to do. I can only say what God wants me to say. 
Um, and he's like, well, give it a shot. And he pays him money, and he goes, seven times he tries to curse Israel. And every time, he ends up blessing Israel. He's like, I just got to say what God tells me to say. Well, here's the interesting thing. In chapter 24 of Numbers, this is, I think, one of his final uh, prophecies or, or blessings. He says this. See if this sounds familiar to you. I see him, but not now. I beheld him, or behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So right there, you'll, you'll hear in this a certain echo going back to the fall and and. God's prophecy concerning Eve that of her seed, the seed would crush the the, uh, serpent's head. And you also very distinctly see a portending of Christmas itself, don't you? A looking forward to a star, a star that will rise out of Jacob and a ruler, a scepter, right? Scepter depicts rule, so a king that will rise out of Jacob. So think about this for a minute. You've got a Gentile false prophet. Um, yes, he was willing to say what God wanted him to. He wasn't a good guy. You know that, right? He didn't end up being a, uh, a very good guy. But um, you, ha- you have a, a pagan prophet and a pagan king talking about a future Isra- Israelite king before the Israelites have kings. How, how, how odd is that? How very much like God is it to do something like that? Through, through a pagan prophet, he, he announces the coming of Messiah. Now, was Balaam a seeker of God? Uh, no, no. Um, but that's not the point. The point is this, this ruler to come under the star was a king in whom they could be called blessed. This, they saw him coming. Now, they weren't looking forward to that coming, but that's been laid in. That's, 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 that's DNA, that's genetic, that's... That's in there now. Yes? Tracking with me? All right. Proof number three. There was this son of David. There was a son of David. David is actually the template for Messiah. He's sort of the original. He's the, he's the, the, the king after God's own heart. He's the king that God makes a covenant with that, that one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. Where do the nations fit into that at that point? Is, is there a nice, attractive spot for the, uh, for the Gentiles in relationship to a Davidic king who sort of rules over the nations? Well, at first, at first it doesn't seem so. In fact, if you go to the very first psalm in the scripture that deals with Messiah, which is Psalm 2, very, very messianic psalm, it says this. Why do the nations rage? And then again, the nations, that's the Gentiles. That's us, right? Unless you're 100% Jewish by birth. You know, we're all, we're all Gentiles. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. What does anointed mean? Messiah, Christ, right? The anointed king saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, are they looking forward to Messiah? 
with great anticipation and joy? No, they're not. No, they're not at all. And, and you could almost use this to, to just completely torpedo my whole point today. However, however, if you read the rest of the psalm, something interesting starts to happen. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, the ones that are you know, setting themselves against the Messiah, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, so the nations who end up bowing the knee and receiving the king, they are actually blessed through Messiah. They are to rejoice. They are to have joy in this coming king. Now, is it David? Um, no. <laughs> David died. David had his day, did the best he could, followed the Lord after his heart, had many sins that, that marred um, his kingdom, and of course he died and was buried with his fathers. And then Solomon comes along. Maybe it's Solomon. Maybe Solomon could be the Messiah, the anointed one that's being predicted here. You know, um, he has a much different, much different reign than his father David. David was a warrior who consolidated power. Solomon, in contrast, was a king who enjoyed greatness and power and, and rule and wealth and, and wisdom. He was wise beyond all the, the philosophers of his day. And guess what? This is interesting. This is something I want you to hang on to as we go through the rest of this. The nations flocked to Jerusalem to hear his wisdom. Have you ever thought about that before? About that connection? They are drawn to God's holy city. They are drawn to, to the temple. They're drawn because there's this incredible king with this incredible wisdom and knowledge. And, and so, you know, the king of Tyre gives, gives Solomon almost like a blank check of, of, of things to help him build the temple. You have the queen of Sheba traveling. I don't know how far. I mean, I don't think they absolutely are 100% sure about where uh, that was, but it was a long way. It was hundreds of miles that she went because she'd heard about the wisdom of Solomon, but she had to hear it for herself. And when she got there, she ended up saying, well, what I was told wasn't half of what is true concerning your kingdom. And then we find out it didn't stop with those two kings. If you go to 2 Chronicles 9, 22-24, listen what it says. This is the end of, pretty much the end of uh, Solomon's life. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver, of gold, garments, myrrh, hmm, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Almost seems like it's Solomon. But David and King Solomon are imperfect emblems of the grander picture that's being portrayed. And the nations were subdued under them, and they did, the, the nations did seek their audience. So in what happened during their time, the world got a taste 
of what the anointed king in Jerusalem, imperfect though they were, of how good that could actually be. Now, did everyone bow the knee? No, of course not. But what you see, I think, is that germ laid in. It's, it, it's, it's, it comes into the consciousness of the world that there is this significant king, this Messiah among the Jews that was, that was to matter, that was to, to, that was to be significant. Now Solomon was not faithful in his latter years. He ended up departing away and, and going after idolatry, which is a very sad, sad end indeed. He died when he died, essentially, Almost immediately, the kingdom was split in two for the northern half and the southern half. Judah was in the south. You know, the, just a quick overview of the history. 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in and captured and destroyed the northern kingdom, carried them away for the most part, leaving some of the poor. And then in the southern kingdom of Judah, 586 B.C., so what, 100 and some, 150 years later, the, the southern kingdom is taken off by Babylon, carried off into captivity. They spend 70 years in captivity. Cyrus, king of Persia, gives them the okay to go back. But, but they never reclaim anything close to that brilliance of the time of David and Solomon. In fact, the temple they build is just a shell compared to the original temple. So the, the Old Testament ends kind of with that Seinsuch thing we're talking about. It's as, it, it's as though the Old Testament ends with this, this longing. When will Messiah come? When will that which we saw in, in sort of its germ form in David and, and, and in Solomon, when will we see the, the fullness of that? Were the nations looking expectantly? No, they certainly were not. But they were primed. They were primed. They had all of this information in there. One of their prophets, one of their ancient prophets, had talked about a star rising in Jacob. And all of their kings at one point had gone up to Jerusalem to hear Solomon. So all that's laid in. And then we get to where we started. There were these wise men. There were these wise men. Have you ever heard of the wise men? I'm guessing so. Yeah? What did we used to call them? Do you know what we used to call them? The Magi. I don't know why we dropped that. Did that just seem too weird or something? Uh, Magi is actually a really good way of translating it because that's actually in Greek literally the word that they were the, they were the Magi. It meant magician or astrologer. Um, they were kind of pseudoscientists. They were like if you took an astronomer and an astrologer and they had a baby. Like, they were kind of a little bit of both of those things, if you will. Um, interestingly enough, Zoroastrianism. Have you, have you heard of Zoroastrianism? I'm not plugging Zoroastrianism today. If I sound positive at all towards Zoroastrianism, I'm not. Uh, but it was an ancient religion, and the Greeks referred to their priests, Zoroastrian priests, as magi. So, were these Zoroastrian priests, there's, there is a good likelihood that they were very, a very distinct possibility. They were not Jewish. They were not Jewish. Now, 
there's that thought that, well, they could have been Jews from Babylon because many Jews remained in Babylon. But um, the indication is they're not Jewish. They get there and they don't say, hey, where's our king? Hey, we're fellow Jews from Babylon. Where's our king? They say, where's the one born king of the Jews? So they, they distance themselves from it. Now, then you have to ask yourself, how is it that the Magi, who may have been Zoroastrian priests, certainly were not, you know, um, they were not Jewish, they were not kosher. Uh, they, 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 how is it that they knew anything about a, a you know, a, ch- a child born to the, to the Jews as, as, as their king? Where did they get that idea? Also, consider this for a minute. Isn't it interesting the way Matthew begins his gospel here? So Matthew, all of Matthew 1 is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that sounds very Jewish to me, doesn't it? It's like it gets off to a grand, great Jewish start. It's a very kosher beginning. And, uh, but then there was something weird happens when we get out of the genealogy. We, we're, now we're thinking, man, this is just going to be all Israel all the time kind of stuff. And uh, what Matthew does is he jumps all over. He leaps frog all of the story that Luke tells us. So we don't get any of that. You know, we don't get the shepherds and, and those things. He jumps straight. His first people who are worshipers of Jesus in this story are pagans. How strange is that? That he, that he jumps, he leapfrogs over all the other material. And the first people who are worshipers of Jesus in this story are pagan followers of a false religion. Have you ever wondered about that? Isn't that about as odd as, as it gets? But if you're kind of tracking with where I've, where I've been going here, I think it makes sense. Now, was, was Balaam a Zoroastrian Hardly. That's, that would be very, very unlikely given the time periods and the places in the world where these things took place. But it's interesting. Perhaps one could argue that they knew that, the, that these guys, these pagan priests, that they knew of the, the prophecy of Balaam. That could have come to them numerous different ways. It could have even come to them from the Jews themselves when they were in exile in Babylon. Because they would have been sharing the same space at the, at the same time. And they would have known about Solomon. They would have known of that whole reputation and, and of the greatness of Solomon. I mean, you think about it. The Zoroastrian priests were very much into, like I said, they were kind of pseudoscientists slash religionists. They, they watched the stars. They liked to catalog things in nature, which is a, very much dovetails with Solomon and Solomon's interest. He was a very sciencey kind of guy. He was always describing everything that he could observe in the, in the world and, and so forth. So they would have had an affinity for that. What we do know is that the Zoroastrian and Jewish scholars in Babylon had some contact. Remember the Jews were taken up into Babylon in their captivity. And while they were there, they did come into contact with Zoroaster. They didn't hold much to them. They didn't, they didn't like them because they were pagans. They didn't really want to have to deal with them. But there were conversations between them. In all of those interactions and exchange of ideas, it could well be that the Magi obtained a, a rudimentary knowledge of the prophecies concerning David, the one who would sit on David's throne, the rise of the star from Balaam's prophecy and all of that. 
what is clearly certain is that they saw the star, and they, in studying the stars, they had understood that that portion of the heaven that that star appeared in signified Israel. And they knew that it signified Balaam's prophecy or whatever, that that there was a child-born king of the Jews. And they traveled all that way in order to worship him. Now, we started by saying that Jesus is the untapped joy of the nation. Is there any joy in the passage for the Magi? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let me go back over it again. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a lot of joy when you're rejoicing. If you're rejoicing with joy, it's, it's, it's pretty profound. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Did they have joy? Did they understand what their joy was in? Harder question. They knew Jesus was the king of the Jews. They understood something about the potential importance to the world of such a Messiah, such an anointed one. Did they understand the gospel at that point? Probably not. Probably not. But somehow, on a very deep level, the kind of level we've been talking about, this this. this this thing that you can't name, this, this longing, when they see Jesus, that longing is, is captivated and there's a fulfillment of that. And so they fall down and they worship him. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about joy. I'm coming back to Lewis now. It was pretty much his, his, joy was kind of his life's preoccupation as a subject, but um, he wrote and tried to describe uh, what he meant. And I'm going to read, it's a fairly lengthy section. It's probably not even wise for me to do because uh, C.S. Lewis is hard to track with. I'm going to give you a little explanation after I read it, but try, try to hang with me here. All right? I don't have it to, up, to put on the screen, so you just have to listen. This is Lewis writing. He says, I will only underline the quality common to the three experiences. He's talking about those three glimpses of joy that he had. And this is, the, this is really the, the bottom line. What he says, it is that of an unsatisfied desire which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. Yeah. I call it joy, which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and from pleasure. Joy in my sense has indeed one characteristic and only one in common with them. The fact that anyone who's experienced it will want it again. Apart from that and considered only in quality, it might almost equally well be called a particular kind of unhappiness or grief. But then it is a kind we want. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever 
If both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. Could you track some of that? Let me try to explain. He's basically saying joy is something very different than happiness, very different than pleasure. It goes, it, it goes very deep. It's very profound. We feel it intensely. It, it, it's an, it, it, it has that aching quality to it. Like when you start to grasp it, you almost sense a heart ache with, with the joy. It can, it's almost analogous to grief, but it's so deep and it's so meaningful that, um, that when you feel it, you want to feel it again. And Lewis says that it, that it was in coming to Christ that he finally fully realized that. I think that's a bit of what the Magi experienced. And it seems to me that this was always intended to be shared with the nations. That it was for the nations from the very get-go. But when Christ appeared, it, it didn't have to any longer be this this thing just out of view, this thing always out of grasp, that with Christ there is the offer of joy to all those, to all those who will come to him and recognize his, his kingdom and recognize his rule. Christian, you have Christ. You have joy. You have joy that you probably have started to take for granted. If you're like me, you know, and you've been a Christian for a long time, it's like we've lived with this joy uh, so, so long. We've been in Christ. Our, you know, we died. Our lives are hidden with Christ and God, as we just saw in the book of Colossians. You have this joy of this, of this certitude of having the, the, the best and the, and, the, and the greatest thing that your soul can long for. It is your possession. And I guess I would just say, as, we, as we've been thinking about this today, remind yourself of that, grasp that. In this time of Advent, lay hold of that for all it's worth. It's yours. Well, take hold of it. Now, you'll let yourself get convinced by various voices that, that, that you're incapable of feeling it. Or, you know, you know you're, you're, you're suffering from this, or you're having that, or there's too much of this or that, uh, the other trial in your life that you... No, it's yours. That joy belongs to you. It's in Christ, so take hold of that. Go after that. If you don't have Christ, you know, then perhaps like Lewis, you've had times in your life where you thought you had an inkling of something called joy. For him, it was that thing where it was almost always like in his peripheral vision. Have you ever had that? Like a feeling, a sense, and then it's like, but you turn and it's not there. You're like, did I make that up? Why did I feel so intense? That's joy. And there is joy. There is joy that you can lay hold of, but that joy, the ultimate joy, is in the Messiah. It's in God's anointed king, the one that he gave his son came into this world and was born as us and then ended up dying as we die. But laying his life down, he was buried and he took it up again on the third day. And now through him, through faith in him, you can not only have eternal life and come into a relationship, a union with Christ, with his Father, with his Holy Spirit, not only is that true, but with that, you can know joy. The joy that the nations longed for. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that, um, that you have been willing 
to save sinners and, and to give them something so amazing, not, not only eternal life with you forever, but, but to actually know joy, which is so elusive. And so it's even hard to define, but when we have it, we know it. Lord, help us as believers to know it better. To seek after, when, when Lord, when we slip into times of, of uh, I don't know, spiritual exhaustion or whatever it might be, and, and our joy seems to be missing, Lord, re- remind us that that is ours, that that has been given. Christ is truly the joy of the world. And we give him all praise and all glory, Lord. Let us, let us have that experience that the Magi had, who looking upon the star and then looking upon him just fell to their knees in joyful adoration. We want more of that, Lord, not less. And Father, if there's somebody here that, that doesn't know you, but they want joy and they've just never been able to lay hold of it, I pray today that they would see in Christ the ultimate joy of the world. And that turning to him, they would have life in his name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.